All right. Well, a very good day to you all. It's such a pleasure to be with you. And this session on uh, going virtual and remote is going to have lots of content that you can use in, in a variety of ways today and uh, forward. And we're going to actually uh, look at various hardware and software trends and remote integrations and major updates and, and many, many other things along the way. We, this is the first of multiple parts to uh, you know, talk about virtual because this isn't a trivial thing to get done right, but you may discover that you can uh, in fact use one approach or another approach to get the job done. So that said, um, my name is Randy Johnston. I'm out of Hutchinson, Kansas. And uh, I have been speaking about technology for a good number of years. And, uh, you know, this particular topic is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm going to spend some time just helping you understand what I believe to be uh, kind of the best of the best approaches here along the way. Now, today's uh, webinar is produced by the Devmatics team that uh, builds all sorts of software uh, and tools to make business happen, and including custom enterprise software and mobile apps and workflow automation and so forth. And today's podcast is a, a, a free broadcast. K2 biweekly uh, produces this uh, podcast and we do reviews and analysis and we do training on topics from everything to Excel to Power BI to security to you name it. And we push it out to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play and SoundCloud and more. So you can watch or listen live like some of you are today and uh, do that on Tuesdays and Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And we're also streaming live on Facebook and YouTube. So uh, check that out at cpetoday.com. You can also earn credits for today's webinar. It's really simple. And uh, uh, all you do is just in a couple of minutes, uh, take a short five question quiz and our certificate will be mailed to you from our partner K2. And uh, you are welcome to free copies of the materials to back this up. And, uh, you know, you can, you have the ability to ask questions. And I see I didn't get the code substituted in here. That should be GVT1 for today's code. So in any case, if you, if this is your first podcast, you can earn your credit today for no charge by using the code one free podcast. So uh, throughout the uh, presentation, the uh, names, logos, brands are property of their respective owners. And this seminar is for educational use only. It's the best guidance I can give you on this day. But uh, I also want you to know that many of these other tools are the respective owners of their copyright holders. So uh, there are going to be questions to confirm your engagement and attendance. You'll notice that the first, cup of first quiz question or first question popped up there. And um, this is really just to make sure that you're staying with us. That's an ASBA requirement. We will see a question about every 12 or an attendance prompt every 12 to 20 minutes. So there'll be about four over an hour together. When the prompt comes up, just select a response to confirm your attendance and the system will track your response along the way. So I may or may not announce the uh, attendance prompt. So just keep an eye out for them if you would. Your certificate will 
arrive to your email account. You do have to respond to 75% of the attendance prompts to receive full credit for the presentation today. And it'll be delivered via email within two days of the event. So if you have any questions, visit CPE today uh, if you have questions or issues with the certificate itself. And while we're working today, we just ask you to share your thoughts with us. Uh, we'll ask you to complete a course evaluation form immediately after this podcast. It should pop up in the browser window automatically, and the evaluation should take you one or three minutes, somewhere in that range, to complete. And your feedback is very important, so please do take a moment to complete the online evaluation and provide those uh, that feedback. So I'm here to answer your questions. Please ask away. I'm not trying to talk over your head. I'm trying to make sure you understand the material and the options. And there's more options that I could have presented, but I didn't want to get too technical. Likewise, I don't want to be too simple. So if you have questions, just ask away. And I'm happy to explain things more than once or to show another example. And if you've got insights, we'd like to hear about that as well. If you're having technical issues, please use the chat or Q&A functionality to ask for help. So that said, it's time for us to roll on into this. Now, virtual desktops come in a, a variety of, of uh, formats and, and issues here. And the main concepts that are associated with virtual desktops is you can either do a self-built approach or you can do a subscriber-based approach. So DIY or pay somebody to do it. Now, as it turns out, uh, both work, the experience in the both are about the same. Obviously, maybe a little bit more work if you do it yourself, but you might have more control and be able to configure things in the way you want. In fact, the um, prior call before I started today's event was with a CPA firm who is doing a subscriber-based uh, remote desktop and is having issues. And they don't have any control over it and can't seem to get it fixed. And they've been working on it for about a year. So there are some of those types of things that, you know, I wish didn't happen, but that's the way it works. Do it yourself, subscriber-based. When I say do it yourself, that might mean that you're contracting with IT teams or managed service providers, as opposed to maybe the hosting companies. Now, the next thing is you should be aware that vendor cloud technologies won't always work. They're getting much better than they were. But they still have some things sometimes where they just don't quite work. Again, another call from earlier this morning was talking about uh, a tax product that really wasn't working quite properly. And uh, earlier in the week, I dealt with somebody else who also had accounting software that didn't quite work properly. However, most of those are still better than the alternatives that we've had traditionally. And they, they really have become more and more reliable over time. Additionally, if there's more than one vendor that's involved, it may take a while to resolve this. Think of it as finger pointing. That's probably not fair, but that's the way I think about it. And, uh, you know, one vendor will say, oh, it's not my problem. It's their problem. And it might be both their problems, might be neither one of their problems, but it will take more time to get things figured out. Further, a lot of times when people refer to remote access or cloud technologies, they think all the problems go away when you use these technologies. But for example, if there's a failure, recovery from a failure is not instantaneous. It'll take a little while to work that as well. Um, 
in the major cloud installations, major applications are more likely to talk to each other. If you're doing it yourself, or if you've got your own IT team that builds this, there's hard drive storage called storage area networks that should be replaced about every seven years. And the server should be replaced about every five years. So if you're doing a traditional private cloud, you're most likely going to have a cycle where you replace your servers and SANs on about a five-year basis. Now we think a lot of this server SAN replacement will become less as we go into the future with Azure and Amazon Web Services and Google and other public utility cloud providers. But if you have exceptionally high performance needs or criticality from a, a security perspective, you may still today uh, prefer to do your own private cloud. Hosting, however, eliminates the capital expenditure, but that may not mean that it's cheaper. So I have run numbers on a, uh, a situation with about 165 users. And my best estimate is that for their 165 users to run a private cloud would cost them about 200,000. Uh, but they're convinced they want to be using hosting companies. And all of the hosting companies for the same period is about 500,000. So it's about $300,000 more to do it in that one situation. So these things do seem to be true though. Performance comes from solid state drives and storage area networks that are also uh, using solid state drives. Input output operations per second or IOPS matter because when we're running off of these big uh, cloud environments, each user needs about 180 IOPS. And many of the cloud providers have designed their hosting environment to provide users about 15 IOPS. So 15, 180. You can see that there could be some real performance difference there. Centralized computing takes less maintenance, it's more consistent than installing all the applications at the edge. Further, it's easier to do collaboration and productivity on a centralized computing platform and uh, rather than integrated systems like ERP, DMS, Audit, or Tax. So just make sure you know that. Good quality support also saves time and money. And if you are hosting uh, with a provider, in other words, you've done the, the, the decision to outsource it. Most IT tactical issues should be resolved in 72 hours. So again, earlier in the week, I uh, reviewed an SLA, a service level agreement from a cloud provider. And they basically said that they would resolve things in seven days. And I said, nah, that, that will not work. 72 hours, three days. Is, should be really the max. And then finally, multi-factor authentication is needed when you're going to be remote to provide the best security. So um, I, I do note one of the attendees today has basically said, look, uh, the newest version of Amazon Web Services, EBS or block storage allows you to provision guaranteed IOPS 
which is fantastic for performance. And I appreciate knowing that. And I'll ask right back at you, do you happen to know how many IOPS you can guarantee per user? And it may take you a little bit to figure that out, but uh, that's super to know. Now, in remote access and over the various parts of doing this particular session, we're going to talk about the seven variants of remote access. Now, in the long term, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to run everything in a browser, software as a service, and we hook those things together with connection software that I call digital plumbing. Now, there's some simple ways to get things done, web-based relay services. That'd be things like GoToMeeting, and we'll talk about all these as we go. Then there's VPNs. Then you can have remote access to a de desktop. You can do public cloud uh, access. You can do private cloud access, and you can do VDIs. All of these seven variants have internet connectivity as the core of what's being done. Now, if you're a smaller business listening today, um, I, I change strategies when I've got smaller firms. So, you know, if you're, let's say, less than 15, you could use traditional servers with remote access. You could mix Microsoft uh, Office 365 and other cloud services. And in general, hosting will be easier for you. There's no servers. There's no, nothing to maintain. But a 10-user minimum is pretty common. So if you're a very small environment, um, this may actually be tougher to get done. On a larger firm, uh, particularly, let's say, in the 15 to 50-user range, you can, you can define a, an environment where you can get very high performance and with a little bit of thoughtfulness on the configuration, you can reduce the cost very notably. If you're doing the designs to uh, scale, normally there's gonna be storage area networks and we want redundancy, that's known as an N plus one design, where we have everything we need plus one spare. So you can do very scalable hardware for 50, 200 users, but the designs change again when you get bigger than 200 users. Citrix as a published desktop is the most common and most effective of all of the various approaches that are out there. So when we look at private cloud options today, we can use Microsoft Windows Server and their remote app or their remote desktop services, which were formerly known as terminal services. In the Citrix world, the Citrix virtual apps, we can either publish the app or we can publish the desktop. And in fact, they refer to that as virtual apps and desktops today, as you can see on the next bullet. And you can do a VDI option also with VMware's Horizon View. So we either have remote access desktops or we have full uh, VDI desktops. Now, it doesn't really matter which type of cloud you're doing, private cloud, public cloud, you're gonna need certain types of things in almost all situations. Uh, and I appreciate that. So notice the max IOPS volume response was uh, 16,000 max. So, um, you know, I'm just kind of doing the math math on that if it's 180 notice that i still have a somewhat of a limitation of about 100 users to get the throughput that i might need for cpa firms well needed in pretty much all situations 
are redundant communication lines. So probably for the last 30 years or so, internet has become so common and the internet costs are low enough that we've normally recommend that you have two different internet connection lines from two different sources so you're not out of service. Redundant communication lines is a big deal. Next, in your firewalls, we typically like to have a pair of firewalls installed and each of the firewalls hooked to each of the redundant communication lines. And the idea here is if a communication line fails or a firewall fails, they, they can just fail over and run with only one communication line or one firewall. That's called high availability or high availability failover. Next, we believe that for infrastructure, that you should have more sophisticated switches. That's the devices that connect all our computers together. And they should be configured with multiple pathways or trunking uh, as well to make them higher performance. We believe a higher performance SAN with solid state disk at the host or local level makes sense. Again, if you're uh, using a hosting provider, you can pick up the uh, uh, speed that way. You will generally get better performance with no VPN, but not running a VPN is risky in particular with Microsoft's RDS, which is imminently uh, breakable. As I've said earlier, multi-factor authentication is a big deal. So we'd like you to run the likes of Duo or Microsoft Authenticator or one of the many others there. And then you're still gonna need laptops and workstations with solid state drives. And we believe you need monitors, two to four monitors and scanner support. So it doesn't matter here whether you're in a public cloud or a private cloud. I think most of the things on this list you would need to have reliability. Well, from there, um, there are some selection criteria that we'll hopefully talk about and we want to make you think about now. Control is clearly one of those. Control probably drives us more towards the do-it-yourself model. Um, pricing might drive us towards the do-it-yourself model. But each of these elements you should consider when you're making a decision to be private cloud or public cloud. Uh, charges for bandwidth are not unusual. And in fact, I was looking at the egress charges for Microsoft Azure this week, and some of those can get pretty large. But again, if you're staying inside the data center, you don't have many egress charges. You'll have to look at the providers. And in various business sectors, there's a number of competitors here. You'll also want to think about where you get your support, what the source of that support is, what the cost of that are. And then beyond that, what are your redundancy and backup approach? Now, if you are um, using private cloud, you will have capital costs related to the infrastructure and you'll have capital costs related to other premise equipment in either case. And you'll have capital costs related to software in either case. Costs generally in the public cloud scale with the number of users costs in the private cloud remain relatively flat with number of users. So you probably want to run the, the numbers to determine 
okay, if I'm a hundred users, what's my cost profile in public cloud? What's my cost profile in private cloud? And what happens if I go to 200 users or 250? Or let's go down at the smaller end for just a minute. What's it like if I'm 10 users and I'm private cloud or public cloud? You, you want to think about where you're going to be in your journey over a five or a seven year period. You'll also want to look at performance and scalability and some of the other limitations and then the cost to change back. Particularly, I've moved firms into Azure and into Amazon Web Services, and I have moved them back as well. So looks like it is time for a review question. So what are some of the remote risks that are out there? Well, speed beyond your control. Uh, somehow I think our questions are not aligned here. Uh, security issues, hackers attacking your system, or all of the above. And I think your question says, what should we expect from a good remote access implementation? Speed, like what's, like what's available in the office? Monitor and printer support for all locations? Anywhere, anytime, any device access, or all of the above? And hopefully you've had a chance to answer that. But I believe that in this particular case, one of the re remote risks are speed that's beyond your control. Okay. Well, there are several remote access approaches out there, and this is not all of them. But from a centralized computing perspective, you've got private cloud co-locations, you've got premise space, you've got hybrid hosting, you've got remote hosting. And from a distributed perspective, you've got applications where you run all in a browser and just hook things together with connection software we call digital plumbing. You've got the web-based relay services and VPNs, You've got your public cloud uh, storage and uh, application hosting environments. And then you've got the publisher-based, uh, application-based uh, options. Now, as it turns out, uh, for the methods of remote access, I believe you've got several major categories here. Now, as you will see me repeat in several different ways, there's lots of choices here, lots of right ways to do it, lots of different ways. There's no one right, no one wrong way. They're just different. However, sometimes as you'll see in a table that's later in the presentation, there's advantages, disadvantages, or considerations for these different methodologies. Now, if you're doing a pure do-it-yourself, you could use a browser-based options, tools like LogMeIn or go to my PC to get remote access to another machine. You can use VPNs. We prefer business-grade firewall VPNs, the like from Cisco or SonicWall would be a way to get it there. But VPNs have the downside of rel being relatively slow. In terms of remote apps and remote desktops on the server, you got two major approaches there. You've got the Microsoft Windows Server, which has their remote desktop services. And you got Citrix Virtual Apps, where you can either publish an app or you can publish a desktop. And then for VDIs or virtual desktop infrastructures, you've got two basic approaches here, Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktop, 
and VMware Horizon. All right. Well, I apologize for getting these uh, somewhat out of order, but it's time for another review question. They're in rapid fire here. Uh, what are some of the remote access benefits? Uh, anywhere, anytime, any device access, ability to see and use authorized applications, work remotely, home hotel class if you're in the office, or all of the above. And I, I appreciate you getting the uh, question four up there for you. So in any case, as you're reflecting on this answer, um, what do you think it is? Well, being able to work anywhere, anytime, any device seems right. Being able to see and use an authorized application, work remotely. Yeah, I'm thinking that the right answer here might be all of the above. All right, let's step through some of these various options then. And again, we've got seven different approaches that we can discuss. We're gonna do the simple one here first, the browser-based options. It's a very simple do-it-yourself technology. Uh, there's a number of products in the marketplace that can do this, but I'm gonna suggest that the log me in, go to my PC, uh, type of approaches seem to make the most sense here. Now, I'm going to back up for just a minute because there are at least 15 of these various products out there. And one of them, as you can see on this slide, is WebEx, which I don't pull over into this one. But there are some others that have been around for a while, but these techniques all seem to be getting a little more compromised over time. Now, this method depends on an agent to be installed on a respective device, and it's accessed through a web browser to access the device. So if you think, I got a computer at home, computer in the office, I want to access the one in the office from my computer at home, I can use this piece of software attached to that and work away. Now, there's the key players in my mind are log me in and go to my PC. TeamViewer is very popular, uh, but each of these products are having security faults reported where the bad actors have concluded that they can use these tools to try to break into machines. TeamViewer, for example, has had reports of uh, access by bad actors and you know, I may even consider whether that should be named, but I want it here as an example of one that's been compromised. Now, this approach requires a remote computer to be on and accessible, not in sleep or hibernation mode. So the remote computer can run a desktop server uh, operating, a desktop operating system or a server operating system. But this class of tools doesn't permit a local user or remote user to do the same thing. They do different things at the same time. So you can only have a single interactive session and uh, you can basically watch somebody work in real time while they you know, do data entry, upload, download files, all of those type of things. Now with the browser-based option, security is entirely up to the end user, but it's monitored by the provider at some level. So the weaker duplicated passwords is very common because people tend to re reuse passwords, which is not wise, but they're simple. So that's done. And what happens here is because you've got weaker duplicated passwords, that means you're gonna have weaker security. You're gonna need antivirus on all the machines involved. 
And these vendors sell their plans on a monthly basis for single or multiple users. And if you're going to use them all the time, you need to have a persistent client installed and running 24 by 7 on the various machines. Now, there are some other uh, variants of these products that are out there. For example, ShareConnect is a variant of LogMeInPC and GoToAssist is a variant of GoToMyPC. And other services are used to connect to when only as needed with assistance from an on-site user. So I noticed that a lot of the remote management tools or RMM tools have these types of abilities. So um, second major approach, virtual private networks. Now, what I'd like for you to do is to consider that uh, VPNs protect whatever is outside of the VPN. A VPN tunnel extends your firewall to cover remote users everywhere. Think of it kind of like a force shield or a shield around the remote user. And the encryption tunnel created by the VPN allows traffic in or it blocks communication with anyone other than the VPN host servers and private cloud. So the VPNs themselves uh, allow internet traffic from remote users to flow through the VPN tunnel and make a private connection. Now, a client-based VPN is a direct connection to the internal network from an external device via a VPN client. And it uses an encryption algorithm like AES or DES to secure the connection to the end device. Typically, it's gonna to connect to the uh, hardware firewall or uh, Unified Threat Manager product. Cisco, Sonic Wall would be examples of some of those uh, products that are available. Now, once a user is connected, the user is able to access the network resources as if they were inside the network. Now, that's good, it's bad. The good part is it's like they're on the network no matter where they're at. The bad part is if an unauthorized user gets connected in that style, they can have free run of the network. Now, there are often, uh, often the need to connect just a few specialized products remotely. I'm going to pick on QuickBooks as an example here. And if you want to run QuickBooks Desktop, there are products that allow QuickBooks Desktop to be accessed from afar. And that's the only thing they really support or try to support. So I'm going to actually name two here in the presentation, MyQuickCloud and Pertino. Both do that job pretty well. If you, instead of remotely connecting in real time, want to simply duplicate the files, you could use another tool like Qbox. But if you want to have terminal server, remote server-like experience, MyQuickCloud and Pertino will absolutely do that. Now, there are clientless options such as PP, PPTP servers or SSL VPNs that are all, they're pretty much yield the same result. But PPTP, PP, 
TP is a little harder to set up, not to mention it's a little harder to say. So this is the least secure option that's out there. It's built into Windows. I mentioned it not to recommend it, but to avoid it. Um, because of its lack of security, that's a real issue. Now, there are two other types of VPN that I'd like to point out for today's course. IPsec, which is the most secure and most difficult to configure. There's a required client installation, password and certificate installation required. And many public networks block IPsec VPN traffic. On the other hand, SSL is the most common nowadays. It's easier to set up. It's less secure than an IPsec VPN. The um, devices, uh, very few devices require a client app. On the other hand, some mobile devices don't support client-based VPNs. SonicWall has a SSL VPN on their firewalls, and they also have for sale separate dedicated SSL VPN appliances to provide remote connectivity. All right, well, we wanted to make sure that you didn't miss this because a lot of the vendors are continuing to advertise on TV about VPNs and protecting your identity and so forth. This is a list of common VPNs, but we're going to suggest that you need to be careful with those because you may create compliance issues if you use them with confidential data without understanding their privacy policy. And as a general rule, if you're not certain or you don't want to understand the terms of service, you shouldn't use it with your confidential business data. So through the years, we've recommended uh, PIA, a VPN, which prior to being purchased by the Chinese government and provided to the nationals there in 2020, I believe it was, it was a great little product. But today, notice that PIA now has Chinese backdoors in it. The same thing is true with NordVPN. I've got security concerns there because of the Russian backdoors. But we have a variety of VPN services that are good, that protect our capabilities, protect our privacy. But I am going to warn you about a concept here. With a VPN, you got to think of it as being a pipeline that's secure, but out, out of the end comes or end end is all the data traffic and all the applications in and out of that single point. Same way up on the server side, in and out of the single point. So the problem is with VPNs, they can pop up anywhere around the world. And if you've got a VPN that's popping up anywhere, it might not have the same protections of some of the VPNs that we would control at the hardware firewall level. So our rule of thumb here is if you're trying to use a VPN for personal purposes, I don't know that that's needed or will end well compared to some of the other options that are out there. On the other hand, if you're a business and you've got a, a business grade VPN that you can extend, that may actually be a wise choice. All right, let's take a look then at the third major approach. Now, this one's going to have a lot more 
uh, length and depth around it. Um, why? Because remote apps and remote desktops is the most common way that users get apps on servers. And like the VPN option, the RDS option uses a client to connect to the user to the network. However, instead of making a direct connection from the remote device to the network resources, the RDS client connects the user to a server or a pool of servers inside the network. So you're not going like the do-it-yourself, go to my PC or log me in. You're not taking over a single computer. You're going in and connecting and sharing the server. Now, RDS services is a role that's included in almost all versions of Windows Server. Client access licenses, though, are required for the end user to legally use the feature. So RDS, how's it look? Well, you can see I've been picturing it on top of a bus, and that's the way I'd like you to think about it. When you're using RDP or RDS, you're one of many users getting your apps from a server operating system, which also tries to figure out which remote apps can be server hosted and which ones show a server desktop uh, that multi-users can simultaneously access a terminal window, window from a single server instance. Most generic application support is available in RDS versus um, or with less individual customization for printers and shares. A lot of the legacy accounting apps don't support RDP, RDS, but that's gotten less and less as time has gone on. There are poor audio and video performance uh, profiles on this, just not enough resources to share. And it's roughly analogous to taking the bus or other public transportation. There's multiple users, there's a single OS instance and limited application support as opposed to zero um, who else? QuickBooks Online, uh, any of the SaaS products. Basically, you don't have to hook to a server. You simply hook to uh, the hook through a browser to the resources. All right. So if you're looking at RDS RDP from an individual machine, you can either hook directly into a corporate LAN server from a branch office. You can do the same. And through a remote worker, you can do the same. Now, you'll notice that both of the remote workers identified that they ran on a, a VPN. I think that's mandatory to secure RDS, RDP. And um, if you're within the office, your firewall is probably going to take care of that. Probably not quite as mandatory. Okay, RDS is one approach. The second approach is Citrix Virtual Apps. Now, remember, this company has two products, Virtual Apps and Virtual Apps and Desktops. Virtual Apps is the RDS equivalent. It's the same concept and is basically an extension of RDS. As a rule of thumb, uh, the RDS offering from Microsoft is Citrix's earlier cousin. So if 
you had a situation. I'm just trying to think of the best way to describe this to you. If you had a situation where you wanted to connect to um, a server, Citrix virtual apps will generally run faster with less overhead on less bandwidth, with better printer support, with better monitor support, with better scanner support than RDS. RDS versions like RDS 2019 have been licensed from Citrix. And that's basically the Citrix 2016 product. Likewise, the RDS uh, 2016 product is most likely more like the 14 or 2012 uh, Citrix product. So RDS lags Citrix by about three or four years. And part of that happens because the uh, Microsoft licenses Citrix for the RDS functionality. All right. Well, uh, with Citrix, it's very robust. Uh, you have to get RDS CALs, client access licenses, as well as user licenses for Citrix itself. You also uh, will discover it's extremely robust when it comes to printer scanner compatibility and support. And the desktop or application is published for users to access internally or externally. Now, Citrix can be site licensed or by users, uh, which includes the uh, an load balancing product called Netscaler. Now, there's a couple of speed considerations. Now, for those of you who are attending today who are in public practice, your speed uh, requirement, I think, is greater. Industry attendees, we don't want to waste your time, but your performance requirements day to day are not as great. So for public practice, we recommend don't normally a line speed of 256 to 512K per user. For Citrix apps, virtual apps, 128, 256 is now. And for VDI, 64 to 128K is plenty. So how many users are put in a virtual machine? Five to six if you're using RDS, 10 to 12 if you're using virtual apps, and one if you're using the VDI. And how many users do you have a server? about 30 and about 60 and about 40 is about how it goes. Now for industry attendees, um, I think I can get by with even less RDS server capabilities. Um, for Citrix virtual apps, I think for industry attendees, you can do 64 to 128K pretty safely and get 120 uh, users on a server. And for VDI, probably 32 to 64 and 40. Now, VDI, you've heard me use the term VDI and virtual desktop infrastructure several times. VDI is more like a taxi. So what happens here is individuals are placed inside a taxi and routed all wherever. Now, the virtual desktop infrastructure is available from Citrix, in a product called Virtual Apps and Desktops or from VMware Horizon. Uh, it is similar to uh, Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktops is similar to Citrix Virtual Apps published desktop option. 
However, the difference here is the VDI makes a desktop-based operating system available, such as Windows 7 or 8 or 10 or 11. Unlike Citrix virtual apps, VDI users don't share the same vinyl of VMs simultaneously. That's part of the reason I put them in taxi cabs rather than buses. Users uh, access a desktop that's part of a pool or statically assigned to each individual user. And it requires a large amount of infrastructure to run smoothly. Now, <coughs> excuse me, the virtualization concept is morphing. Uh, a virtualization instance is an instance of an operating system or a virtual machine, which runs on generic hardware using a virtual host application, which is called a hypervisor. Most of your servers should be virtualized by now. So you move to a backup server in the case of emergency without a lot of time consuming reconfiguration. And just as the cargo shipping container is loaded once and can be transported by truck and train and ship in some areas aircraft, uh, virtualization decouples the operating system from the underlying hardware, the same way that shipping containers uncouple the freight container from the power unit. VMs can run anywhere with minimal reconfiguration, which makes them wonderful in a disaster recovery scenario. Now, traditional servers without virtualization often look something like this. You'd have file and print servers on services on one. You might run Citrix or Exchange or Active Directory or uh, be running a loan system or QuickBooks or whatever. Each individual application was loaded on a server. And then what happened is mm, a few years back, I was actually trying to remember exactly when, uh, a few years back, it became obvious that we wanted to virtualize most everything. And the traditional environment here might have taken a dozen servers. Well, nowadays, uh, two ESX server hypervisors can do the work, same work as eight to 12 physical servers. So the virtual environment looks much more simple. And it's because it's all consolidated in this one graphic. If we're going to add a new host in this environment of virtualization, uh, all we really have to do is buy the new machine, put it online, connect it into the license server, and we can migrate the workloads in real time from one to the other, from you know the prior server farm to this new server. Now, part of the reason virtualization is a big deal is because it helps with zero downtime. In the VMware world, the vMotion capability is able to be activated or turned on based on what's going on with the um, machines themselves. Now that might mean that you're doing maintenance. It might mean that you've got an application that needs restart or whatever, but you can move running applications to other servers without disruption to the point that a user doesn't even know that their application's been moved from a production server to a secondary production server and we shut down, do the maintenance on the production, and we roll it back. And the benefit here is that performance can be done at any time of day. We can also automate the disaster recovery maintenance mode uh, to automate moving virtual machines to other hosts. 
and we can automate rebalancing once the maintenance is complete. Now, I think I'm going to back up for just a minute because I just want to come back to this diagram. Here, we're talking about virtual machines. In the near future, and it is already happening today, there'll be a lot more containers, individual apps instead of individual machines that do a lot of this work. So we can't quite mix virtual machines and containers together. Um, but containers are kind of the new way of thinking about this to get greater security. Now, if you're doing a big VDI infrastructure, you're going to have a lot of server horsepower. In fact, I would go so far as to say you've got a boatload of hardware. And you can see here there's a rack that has all the centralized desktops and virtual desktops. And then we have license uh, clones. Beyond that, you've got the individual edges and clients and laptops, desktops. And then you've got the wide area network, which allows a connection out to, you know, small and large branch offices to type. Well, remote desktop services versus virtual desktop infrastructures, RDS versus VDI. What's the advantages or disadvantages? Well, on RDS, I'd like to remind you, it's like a bus. You're sharing access to one server or one cluster of servers, and you're running a server OS, not a desktop OS. Because of that, there is some limited choice on apps, although most apps have been modified so they can run on RDS. And it is probably going to be more uh, efficient than a VDI, and the licensing is going to be less expensive. On the other hand, if you're running a VDI, each user runs a desktop operating system VM, not a um, server VM. So no one else shares your Windows 7 or 8 or 10 or 11 desktop. You absolutely have your own little place to run it. It's more flexible for app deployment. But the licensing administration is actually harder as a VM for each user is needed. Well, if you think about RDS versus VDI, then with RDS, you can publish a single app or desktop. And the popular products include the ones that I've listed here, same as what we were talking about earlier. If you're doing a VDI, it publishes the desktop only. And you've got these three products that I think represent the market. So if we take Citrix virtual apps versus Citrix virtual apps and desktops, Citrix virtual apps is a published desktop that runs a server OS. It could cause some application and printer compatibility issues, as opposed to Citrix virtual apps and desktops runs a desktop OS, which enhances software and printer compatibility. A virtual apps and desktops creates a new true desktop experience, customizable for the user in a virtual machine. And the software and printers don't have to be identical for all users. It can also be hosted on Microsoft Azure. As opposed to virtual apps, the ability to run an app independent of the desktop may work, may not, depending on its compatibility. It also reduces the server load and gives you a lower total cost of ownership to be on virtual apps both centralized management.
Well, we have been going for a while. It's probably about time for us to get another review question in. And in this case, what are some remote access advantages? And the answer is no limit to where you can work. Keep a single copy of the data, greater security and control, or all of the above. Now, as you're reflecting on this, I believe you can think that there's no limit to where you can work, that all of the data is in the server farms. Yeah, that sounds right. Greater security control. Yeah, I think the right answer here is all of the above. All right, well, I'm going to turn my attention here now to uh, hosting. We've only got a few minutes left, so we may cover hosting, uh, pick up a few concepts and cover hosting in more detail in uh, part two of this session. But hosting, particularly for CPA firms, allows firms to give up the headaches of managing servers and applying updates. But it also gives up uh, control to the service provider they may limit your app selection because they don't support it. Um, so the vendor may dictate a little bit of your strategy there. There's 13 different companies that do CPA firm hosting. And uh, one of those uh, is CTROM, another is Right Networks, and a third is Ace Cloud Hosting. Now I'm going to use CTROM as an example here for just a moment, because um, this particular vendor focuses on custom environments for accounting firms. They have redundant data centers in uh, the District of Columbia around DC and Denver. They're certified for SOC 2 and HIPAA and others. Uh, they only have senior network engineers. So when you call with a problem, you're talking to somebody who can actually fix it. And they have hosting and hybrid network support with optional on-premise service available for additional redundancy. So CTROM has gone to the effort of maintaining all sorts of certifications, including SOC 2, HIPAA, SSAE 16, and FIPS 140, uh, which means they have complied with those particular vendors' approach and probably give you a better work product. Now, CTROM, CTROM itself delivers turnkey IT solutions um, that's accessible anywhere you go. They use Citrix. They customize their virtual desktop applications. They do proactive monitoring of your workstations. They do uh, multiple daily backups. And they perform schedule updates to the hosted software. And they do 24 by 7 by 365 support. So you can think of them as a bit of a virtual uh, CIO. Now, uh, Ace Cloud Hosting supports all the major CPA firm uh, applications. They just won the CPA Practice Advisor uh, Hosting Award as number one this year. Uh, they will host QuickBooks only, or they'll do custom servers for the firms. They can also host QuickBooks Point of Sale and Sage applications, and they use uh, US-based servers in tier three, tier four facilities. I know their primary is in Dallas. I think the secondary is up in Washington state, but they offer what they call a desktop as a service approach where they're available for firms and their clients. And they provide these work from anywhere capabilities on any device. The local hardware can be a thin client or a full PC, but all the data in the apps are run for the cloud. And they can do that for individuals, or for firms with custom servers. 
if you're a smaller uh, business and you want to have hosting, this vendor is one of the few that doesn't have a 10 user minimum limit. So if you just need one and you want to be hosted, Ace Cloud can do that. Well, in our last few minutes together, uh, I'm just going to mention Right Networks as well. Likewise, they specialize in accounting bookkeeping of firms. Uh, they acquired Eccentric, a very popular hosting company in 2018. And they are in a strategic relationship with Intuit, where they host QuickBooks Enterprise Systems for Intuit. They are the largest hoster of QuickBooks in the world and uh, quite large at about 150,000 users. Their goal, of course, is to have kind of an on-the-go access, automatic updates. So you'll see that a lot of the messaging across most of these um, hosting vendors is similar. Notice the application ecosystem, 250 best-in-class accounting and business applications. That's enough for most firms, but uh, loosely, and don't, don't uh, take these numbers to the bank, but it'll give you a sense. Right Network says we support 250 applications. Ctrom is supporting 400. Ace Cloud is supporting 700. So you can see you've just got a little bit more choice with some of these uh, uh, players versus other. Right Networks also does uh, hosting of QuickBooks directly. They do what they call business cloud, application cloud, or just assert itself. So I think that gets us to our last question of the session. Which of the following are complete remote hosting options? Public cloud, private cloud, software as a service, or all of the above? So what do you think on this one? Um, complete, it has everything we need. Public cloud, private cloud, software as a service, or all of the above? Well, I think software as a service doesn't uh, apply. Private cloud may or may not, but the one that does apply is public cloud. So I think that's actually the best answer. Now, in part two, we'll talk about the strengths, weaknesses, performance cost uh, issues, and some other things related to hosting. But for the moment, we have had about as much um, that we can cover in the hour that we've had together. So hopefully, let me just jump down here now then to the summary and for the next time in the series. Today, we've learned that there are seven different remote access approaches, that solid state drives and SANs are the main determining factor for speed. We need some IOPS. And you should be able to work remotely pretty much like you work in the office. Not really a lot of change on that. So that's the start. We've still got more to go in part two, but I thought that'd give us a great start for today. Now you can earn credit for today's webinar. It's, it's uh, super simple. Just take a short five question quiz. And I'm sorry, I didn't get the code in there, but it's GVT1. And uh, you'll get a certificate through K2 Enterprises and you've got access to our materials as well. So uh, if this is your first podcast, remember you can get pod, uh, CPE credits for free with one free podcast as your code. And we'd love to connect with uh, you on social media. Uh, you can subscribe on YouTube or follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, and you can stream on your own time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud.
So we appreciate you being here with us today. And uh, we look forward to having you back in part two, where I'll talk more about some of the strengths, weaknesses, and speeds and feeds and try to help you. And uh, I do appreciate the feedback uh, questions that we had here. And until another time, we'll... Uh, We'll look forward to seeing you. So, Michelle, thank you for that. We appreciate your comment. And uh, we'll see you another time. Have a really fine day and good weekend.